Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Landon for giving me this opportunity to speak. Um, last week, I was reading on Facebook that he wasn't feeling well. My first thought was to pray for him and for his family that he'd get some rest and that they'd be able to get by without his help for a couple of days. Then I thought, well, what if he's still feeling sick on Sunday? Does he have someone lined up to step in for him if he can't teach? At that point, I decided to contact Sonny to see how Landon was feeling, and with a lot of prayer and a lot of trepidation, I offered to step in for him if he still wasn't feeling well. So here I am. This is my first time uh, speaking in front of a, a large crowd, uh, and I'm pretty nervous, so please bear with me. As I was thinking and praying about what I was going to discuss today, I was pacing the floor and repeatedly asking myself, what have you done? Are you a complete idiot to think you could do what Landon does week after week after week? I, I give that man a lot of credit. Um, so I, uh, like I said, I really wasn't sure what I was going to speak on. So my wife, Jane, had said, why don't you speak about something that you know well? That way you won't have to continually look down at your notes and you can look out at the crowd. So if it does look like I'm reading quite a bit from my notes, uh, know that it's because I am. <laughs> First, a little background. Some time ago, maybe 14 or 15 years ago, I read a book by an author named Dave Hunt called What Love Is This? That book caused quite a stir. It was Dave's explanation of why he thought the doctrinal teaching of Calvinism was in error. Dave's main point was that if God had indeed determined before the creation of the world who was going to be saved and who was going to be damned based solely on his desire, then God couldn't possibly be the God of love that we see portrayed in the Bible and so beautifully revealed to mankind in the person and life of Christ. After writing that book, Dave was contacted by a Calvinist theologian named James White. White, being a Calvinist, believed that Hunt was in error and he wanted to debate him. Their debate eventually ended up being a book they co-authored called Debating Calvinism. Now White doesn't believe that mankind has a free will or any ability at all to accept or reject Christianity. He believes that God, for the purpose of glorifying himself, simply decides who will become a Christian and who, on the other hand, he'll eternally damn to hell. This belief in Calvinist theology is called unconditional election. Without their doctrine of unconditional election, the entire structure of Calvinism fails. Calvinists have made great use of Romans chapter 9 by isolating certain verses from the rest of Paul's letter to the Romans. In their efforts to prove their doctrine of unconditional election. Now it's my intent that by studying this chapter in its intended and proper context, I can demonstrate that it doesn't say what Calvinists think it says, and indeed isn't even addressing the issue of individual salvation, but instead is the Apostle Paul addressing whether or not the Word of God had failed. So with this in mind, I'd ask that you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 and read along with me.
Romans 9, verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness 
even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now at first glance, it seems as though Paul may be saying that God does indeed choose to save some while choosing other people for damnation. For verse 18 says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Paul then illustrates this sovereign election by referring to God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. In verses 6 through 13 where it says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are called, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now without regard to anything Jacob or Esau did, it seems that God chose to love Jacob and hate Esau. The support for the Calvinist interpretation seems to grow even stronger as Paul goes on to depict God's relationship with humans as a relationship between a potter and his clay. According to the Calvinist interpretation, Paul is teaching that God fashions some vessels for destruction in order to display his wrath and other vessels for mercy in order to display his mercy. A Calvinist believes that God hardens the hearts of some, thereby damning them to hell, and that he softens the hearts of others, granting them the mercy. Now this hardening and granting mercy is not based on anything God finds in the vessel. It is simply based on God's free decision. If this seems unfair, as it undoubtedly does, Paul's response is simply to invalidate that sentiment by saying, who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molded it, Why have you made me like this? Initially, the case for the Calvinist interpretation looks pretty strong. Nevertheless, it is mistaken. Time permitting, I'll offer six arguments that demonstrate the error of the Calvinist position. Number one, when discussing the nature of God, we must begin and end all of our reflection on the person of Jesus Christ. For the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And also that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. So the revelation of God through Jesus supersedes all previous revelations of himself. 
The Calvinist interpretation of God's nature is in contradiction with the nature of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God is love, and Jesus' death on the cross for his enemies reveals the depth and the true nature of that love. A Calvinist reading of Romans 9 would have us conclude that God's love only applies to some people. They would have us believe that behind the example of God in Christ stands a God who unilaterally determines some to be saved and others to be damned, all for his glory. Now if we resolve that Jesus is our definitive picture of God and that this picture cannot be placed alongside of or qualified by any other, then we must conclude that there is something amiss with the Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9. For Christ reveals and the biblical witness confirms that God's love is universal. His love is impartial, his love is kind, and his love desires all to be saved. Romans 2.11 says that there is no partiality with God, and 1 Timothy 2.4 says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Number two. The Calvinist reading of Romans 9 assumes that Paul is concerned with individual salvation in this chapter. However, that is not the issue Paul is addressing. Rather, he is addressing whether or not the word of God has failed. I'll draw your attention again to verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. You see, the Jews thought that somehow the Old Testament word of God had failed. Paul is asking them, has God's promise to be the God of the Jews and to have them as his covenant people been rescinded? Now this was a burning question for Paul. For to many of the Jews, this, this conclusion seemed to follow from what Paul was preaching. The Jews of Paul's day believed that God's covenantal faithfulness to them depended on their nationality and on their obedience to the law. If what Paul was preaching was true, that is, if salvation were available to anyone, including Gentiles, simply on the basis of their faith, then neither ethnicity nor their obedience to the law counted for anything. Even worse, it now seemed as though these things were working against them. The Jews strove for righteousness based on observation of the law, that is, works, instead of on faith. And they were now being hardened, as is evidenced by the fact that so few of them believed in Jesus. Reading verses 31 and 32, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. This meant that, if Paul's gospel were true, the very ones whom God made covenant promises to were now being hardened. Hence, it looked like the word of God had failed. That is the question Paul was addressing in chapter 9 of Romans. It is a question of God's faithfulness to, salvate, to Israel as a nation. It has nothing to do with how God elects individual people to salvation. Number three. Paul's illustration using Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau was simply intended to show 
that it is God's right to enter into a covenant relationship with whomever he chooses simply on the basis of that individual's faith. By using these examples, Paul illustrated that it wasn't by any act of righteousness that Isaac or Jacob had performed. For neither of them were exemplary in their character. At the same time, it is important to remember that in using Isaac and Jacob to illustrate God's prerogative to choose whomever he pleases, Paul was not concerning himself with the eternal destinies of people. His concern was solely to show God's sovereignty in electing people to an historic vocation. Paul emphasized the arbitrary way God brought about a chosen people through Isaac and Jacob, whose vocation was to serve God and the world by being a nation of priests and a light to all nations. Now, I can't make that point strongly enough that the election that's spoken of in Romans 9 is election to vocation, not an election to individual salvation. Isaiah 42.6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. The Jews were to be the means by which all nations would be blessed by hearing about the one true God. Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the vocation for the historical nation of Israel. Furthermore, Paul uses the example of Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, in his illustration because those four people represent more than individuals. They represent nations. In choosing Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, Paul was saying that God's choice of the nation of Israel over the nation of the Moabites, who were the descendants of Ishmael, and the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau. So when the Apostle Paul was speaking about these individuals, Isaac and Jacob, over Ishmael and Esau, he was basically saying the nation of Israel was going to be used, their vocation, they were going to be used in that historic vocation over Ishmael and Esau, the Moabites and the Edomites. Now this doesn't mean that all Moabites or all Edomites were lost and that all Israelites were eternally saved. It simply means that those two nations were not chosen for the priestly role in history for which God chose the Israelites. This national rather than individual focus is emphasized in the fact of the Old Testament passage that Paul cited to make his point in Romans 9. Please turn to Malachi chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3 read, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. So there you see that Esau, 
using Esau as an illustration, relates to the Edomites. Someone might think now, well, Paul said that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Those expressions are meant to be taken hyperbolically, not literally. It's the same as when Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, was Jesus truly, was he, was he saying you need to hate your mom and dad, your brothers and your sisters? He didn't really mean that they should hate their families. He was using hyperbole or hyperbole. He said that we're to love and respect our families. The meaning of Malachi's phrase then is simply that God preferred Israel over Edom to be the people that he wanted to work with to reach out to the world. The fourth point that demonstrates the error of the Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9 concerns Paul's summary at the end of the chapter. Read Romans 9 verses 30 to 32 with me. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. These verses appeal to free will as the deciding factor of determining who receives mercy and who gets hardened. The importance of this point cannot be stressed enough. Paul explains everything he's been talking about throughout Romans 9 by appealing to the morally responsible choices of Israelites and Gentiles. The one thing that God has always looked for in people is faith. The Jews did not strive by faith though they should have. They rather chose to trust in their own works. The Gentiles, however, simply believed God. They simply believed that God would justify them by faith. This theme recurs throughout chapters 9 through chapter 11. As a nation, Paul says that the Jews were broken off because of their unbelief. This is why they have been hardened. While the Gentiles, who sought God by faith, have been grafted in. Now we see that God's promise process of hardening some and having mercy on others is not arbitrary. God expresses severity toward those who have fallen, the nation of Israel, but kindness toward believers, provided you continue in his kindness. God has mercy on people and he hardens other people in response to their belief or their unbelief. And he is willing to change his mind about both the hardening and the mercy, if people change. If Gentiles become arrogant and cease walking by faith alone, they will once again be cut off. And if the Jews who are now hardened will not persist in their unbelief, God will graft them in again. Please turn to Romans chapter 11, verses 22 to 24. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, 
will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? To the Jews who trusted in their national identity and or external obedience to the law, this hardening seemed arbitrary. Hence Paul chides them by asking, Who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, Why have you made me like this? That's in Romans 9.20. But as Paul makes abundantly clear throughout Romans 9-11, to the hardening was in fact not arbitrary. It was perfectly consistent with the criteria of faith God had always worked with. He gives mercy in response to faith, and he hardens in response to unbelief. It's not the other way around. People don't have faith as a result of God's having mercy on them, and they don't have unbelief as a result of God hardening them, as a, as a Calvinist would teach. Yet to Jews who remained convinced that their national identity and their good works were the basis of God-giving mercy, it now seemed like God was arbitrarily hardening them and arbitrarily extending mercy to the Gentiles. Which brings me to the fifth point. Paul's use of the potter and clay analogy actually has the exact opposite meaning of what a Calvinist assumes it does. Paul's illustration regarding the potter and the clay comes from Jeremiah chapter 18. So please turn to Jeremiah 18 with me, if you will. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 11. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So we see by that that God indeed does change his mind based on our act of faith or our unbelief. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now therefore, Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one of you from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. In the same way, the Lord said that since he is the potter and Israel is the clay, 
he has the right and is willing to change his mind about his plans for Israel if they will simply repent. Indeed, the Lord announced that whenever he's going to judge a nation, he is willing to change his mind if the nation repents. Conversely, whenever God announces that he is going to bless a nation, he will change his mind if that nation turns away from him. In other words, the point of the potter clay analogy is not to demonstrate God's unilateral control, as a Calvinist would insist, but rather God's willingness and his right to change his plans in response to a changing heart. Hence, though God had previously blessed Israel, he was now changing his mind about them and was allowing them to be hardened. Ironically and shockingly, the Jews were finding themselves in the same position as their old nemesis, the Pharaoh. He had hardened his heart toward God, so God responded by hardening him further in order to raise him up to further his sovereign purposes. So too, Paul was arguing, God was now hardening the Jews in their self-chosen unbelief to further his sovereign purposes. He was going to use the rebellion to do what he had always hoped their obedience would do. That is, namely, to bring the non-Jewish world into a relationship with him. Even here, however, the sovereign potter remains flexible. If the Jews will abandon their unbelief, clearly God's hardening is not determinative or irrevocable. The potter will once again fashion his plan and graft them in. Conversely, if the Gentiles ever abandon their belief and become prideful, God's mercy is not determinative or irrevocable. The potter will once again refashion his plan and cut them off. In any case, we see that the point of the potter analogy is the opposite of what the Calvinistic interpretation would have us believe. Paul's point is that the sovereign potter has the right to revise his plans in response to the clay, which is exactly what God was doing to the nation of Israel. And, however arbitrary, his revisions may appear to the Jews who trust in their nationality or good works, they are, in fact, perfectly wise and just revisions. This sheds light on why, God or why Paul responds to the charge that God is unfair by quoting God as saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He is not suggesting that God gives mercy or hardens people without any consideration of the choices that those people make. To the contrary, as has always been the case, the people God chooses to have mercy on are those who have faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Which brings me to point number six. God's decision is about wisdom and not about power. When Paul responds to the charge of injustice by asking, who are you, a human being, to argue with God, he is not thereby appealing to the sheer power of the potter over the clay. He's rather appealing to the sovereign wisdom of the potter in refashioning the clay in a manner that fits the kind of clay he has to work with. When clay yields to the influence of God and has faith, he fashions a vessel of honor. When clay becomes spoiled and resists God's will, he fashions a vessel of ordinary use, that is, being prepared for destruction. Again, 
This fashioning looks arbitrary to the Jews who believe that they were the vessel of honor by virtue of their national identity and their good works. Jews who did not strive for God's righteousness on the basis of faith, but as it were based on works. It is to these people expressing this sentiment that Paul kind of sarcastically asks, who are you? In truth, God's fashioning is not arbitrary at all. It's based on rather on whether or not one is willing to seek after righteousness of God that comes by faith and not by works. The Calvinistic reading of Romans 9 is both misguided and, in my opinion, unfortunate. Misguided because it clashes with the supreme revelation of God's love for all people in Jesus Christ and unfortunate because it replaces the true God with a God who devises all moral sensibilities by arbitrarily fashioning certain people to be vessels fit for destruction and then punishes them for being that way. It exchanges the picture of a beautiful God who reigns supreme with self-sacrificial love and flexible wisdom for a picture of God who reigns by the arbitrary exercise of sheer power. And I, for one, thank God that he's a God who's given me a choice to serve him or reject him, and based on that act of faith, has justified me and every one of you. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're not some distant, uncaring God who capriciously does whatever he wants for his glory, but rather, Lord, that you are a God who loves humanity and continually endures with much patience your creation. We need, we, we crave that patience, Lord, and we love and we're thankful for that patience. Lord, we are a sinful people, saved by grace. When you look at us, you see Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you for redeeming. I thank you for redeeming us and for redeeming mankind, for your precious, wonderful offer of salvation and new life through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. I ask that you go before us now on this day. Let us, let us give glory to you in everything that we do and say. And may we humbly decide to serve one another and to love one another, Lord. I pray that there would be no strife in this day for anyone, but just joy and peace and your presence. We love you, Lord, and we serve you gratefully. In Jesus' name, amen.